following recording is from the fourth and final Sunday of Advent at Van City Church from the series, The Long Winter Breaks. In all the testimonies and art and literature that drifts in the bloody wake of war, you will read and hear this refrain, war is hell. Hell on earth, they will say. World War II was hell. The extermination camps of Poland, the battlefields of the Pacific were hell. The sweltering jungles of Vietnam were hell, the dry deserts of Iraq. Whenever these places became blood-soaked battlefields, incubators for murder and trauma and PTSD and suicide, brutality, cycles of violence upon violence echoing over generations, it was and is hell. I read this week about in the way that in 2013, a kidnapping victim spoke in court to their abductor that kept them imprisoned for more than a decade. And I read this quote, I spent... 11 years in hell, now your hell is just beginning. The abductor had himself been abused as a child and had persisted in the cycle of evil until he was caught and he ended his own life in prison. It was hell upon hell. These descriptions of war as hell, prison as hell, life with an abuser as hell, all of them are in a sense, I would argue, theologically accurate. And when I mention hell, I'm not referring to some kind of fiery dungeon furnished with craggy stone formations prowled by imposing horned beasts, forever soundtracked by wailing souls in agony. You can find places like that in video games or in Dungeons and Dragons, but not in the Bible. In fact, the pop culture imagination has more specific things to say about hell than the Bible does. And so it has to paint its picture using mostly medieval art and Dante's Inferno rather than the scriptures. Now, to be sure, Jesus and the biblical authors do talk about the fate of those who, of their own volition, knowingly reject and deny and denounce the kingship of Jesus, that they, in their choosing other than Jesus, choose other than his eternal kingdom. And we call that choice, a choice with eternal consequences, hell. And then there's all sorts of very valid theological bickering about the specifics of what that means. But I would argue that to understand hell only in terms of something that happens on the other side of death and judgment is too narrow a paradigm. We make the same mistake with heaven. The New Testament authors understand the kingdom of heaven as something that is both now and not yet. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom and we see glimpses of it in the here and now in big things like children being adopted and brought into good homes or when the foster care system works for kids and families or we see it in racial reconciliation and the pushing back of poverty and sickness and suffering. These moments of goodness when we can say definitively, look, God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a glimpse of the coming kingdom of God. But it's also in the little things, the little things that make up the everyday rhythms of our lives. I wake up every morning in the dark while my family's sleeping and I exercise and shower and make coffee and then I sit down with my Bible on my couch looking out my living room window at a quiet, dark street. And nearly every morning, 
as my morning time in the scriptures and prayers drawing to a close, sometimes a little bit before that, but usually near the end, I hear heavy, plodding footsteps making their way down the hall because my son, who's seven, does not know how to walk quietly. He walks as if he were a gigantic gorilla. I don't know why. And he is the second person to wake up in our house every day, and he makes his way to the couch in his pajamas, and he climbs up beside me, and he snuggles up. And for a while, we just sit there, and we talk about usually dinosaurs. He picks the conversation, so usually dinosaurs or movies or anything that's on his mind at the time. Lately, it's been about exactly the, the exact plan for Christmas morning, who will go where and when. And for me, these little moments, these things that I look forward to every single morning, they are glimpses of the beauty and glory of the kingdom of God, when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, in this small thing. But the unfortunate dichotomy of our broken world is that hell works in much the same way. We see glimpses of it in the here and now, and we see it in ways that are really big and obvious and in ways that are very small. I've heard hell, I would argue, incorrectly described as the absence of good, what a ridiculous understatement. Reality TV is the absence of good, or SoundCloud rappers are the absence of good. Hell is more than good gone missing. If the kingdom of God is any place or person or movement in which God's good will and reign is being realized in the world, then hell can be any moment, event, or time or place in which total opposition, total defiance to God's will is being accomplished in the world, the dominion of darkness. And while the Bible does present the occasional exception to human awfulness, while it does argue that human beings are made in God's image and they are capable of doing good things, it also paints a pretty dim view of humanity on the whole, that we are by nature selfish and destructive. And the Bible uses, uses language to describe this predicament that alternates between soft and straightforward, saying things like, we all miss the mark, we all fall short of God's ideal, all have sinned and fallen short. The glory of God is one of the well-known phrasings. It ranges from that, simple and straightforward, a little bit gentle, to crass and outrageous. For example, my Bible translates Isaiah 64, 6 as all of us has become like one who is unclean and all of, our racks, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. But this translation is prudish and honestly, uh, it's pretty disingenuous. Literally, the text says that even our best attempts at righteousness are like used menstrual rags. Evil is in one sense missing the mark. It's in, we mess up, it's a mistake, and it's also crass and outrageous. Evil is like that, meaning evil is evil, but it also exists on a kind of spectrum. All of us have indulged that base, selfish desire within us, and these offenses often seem small, and other times they feel so egregious that they stand to dismantle our lives and the lives of others. And in it all, we are contributing to the dominion of darkness that permeates our broken world. If we can't understand this, if we can't allow this to penetrate and grieve our hearts, we will not understand the beauty of the Christmas story. In her book on Advent that inspired this series, Fleming Rutledge writes this, here is the Advent theme of the link between this life and the life to come, the link that will finally and decisively be made in the day of judgment. 
Radical evil will have no status in the last day. Until that day comes, we must believe in the realm of wickedness. We must believe in hell because there's no other way to take seriously the nature and scale of evil in the world. We must believe in hell because there's no other way to do justice to the victims of darkness. We must believe in hell because without it, Christian faith is sentimental and evasive, unable to stand up to reality in this world. Without an unflinching understanding of the radical nature of evil, Christian faith would be nothing but a suburban bedtime story. It's interesting to me that God's promise of redemption comes so early in the Bible's story. You get this kind of strange messianic promise in Genesis 3 that the woman, Eve, her offspring is going to come. It's going to crush the snake's head, but the snake is going to strike his heel. We think it's the first glimpse of the Messiah, and it's all the way back in Genesis 3. And then you get the covenants proper, a covenant being when God extends promises to his people and asks them in exchange for faithful commitment covenant with Noah, that despite the inevitability of human evil and chaos, God will not destroy everyone and everything. God promises faithfulness knowing that humanity will be faithless. And then comes the covenant with Abraham. God promises Abraham a future and a family and that somehow through this one family, every person on earth will somehow be blessed. And then the covenant with Israel, God guidelines for life with God in order that Israel might represent God to the rest of the world. And then the covenant with David, lead Israel in obeying the Torah, and one day a descendant of David will come to rule and extend God's kingdom of peace and goodness over all nations, and the covenants are broken. Israel practices injustice, follows other gods, fails to keep Torah, fails to represent God's unique goodness to the world. But the weird thing is that when Israel suffers the consequences of her sins, even when she's in exile, suffering, even when her home is destroyed and God's people have left their city, when God's presence has left the temple, even when they are oppressed by pagans and Gentiles, throughout the story, they constantly return to God's promise. There's a kind of willful obstinance on display in Israel's resilient hope across the years that become decades, that become centuries. And it wasn't as if they were waiting comfortably. It wasn't as if they were waiting tucked away in American suburbia, sipping coffee, zoning out on Instagram stories, waiting for them was misery. As a result of generations of sinful foolishness, Israel arrived on several occasions at the shores of hopelessness places so bleak, so far removed from the promise of redemption that it, it could have become for them the thing of scorn, dismissed as wishful thinking in the face of bitter reality. As God's presence abandoned the temple, as the Assyrians, as Babylon raided their city, brutalized their families and children and burned their place of worship and their homes were flooded with blood and violence and engulfed in flames. When Israel's sin had become so persistent and so profound, her worship of other gods, her acts of injustice and idolatry, her breaking of covenant, her betrayal of the God who loved and rescued them from slavery, when Israel had contributed to and stewarded hell on earth and the consequence of her wickedness became for them a new kind of hell on earth, in the middle of all this, Israel sang, give praise to Yahweh, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts, 
Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob, he is Yahweh God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. From Psalm 105. With every reason to abandon hope, Israel sang, he remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations. For the people of God, in spite of sin and failure and betrayal and hell on earth, hell of their own making and hell imposed on them, God's promise was trustworthy. God's promise was inevitable. And things are in many ways different for us now, but one thing remains constant, and that is the waiting. Unlike ancient Israel, we know the whole story. We have beheld in our hearts the arrival of the Messiah. We know God's promise came to bear in his inaugurated kingdom through Jesus, but we are still waiting for a promise to be fulfilled, the renewal of all things, and an end to hell on earth. In his book on Advent, David Mathis writes, It's good for us, though, to rehearse in Advent the anticipation of God's ancient people to renew our appreciation of what we now have in Christ. As we wait, we replay centuries of longing and yearning that preceded the coming of Christ. And in doing so, our joy in and gratitude for what we have, what we have in Christ deepens and becomes richer and sweeter and we too live with longing and yearning for Jesus' second coming, even as our waiting now takes on a fundamentally new shape because of the first coming. This waiting, he goes on to say, changes us. And that change is inevitable. This Christmas, he writes, will change you. You will not be the same afterwards. You will be the better for it or the worse. Will you be closer to Christ because of this Christmas or further away Will your heart be softer to him or more callous? Will more fog lie between your eyes and his face? Or will you see him with greater clarity and savor him with greater fervor? Will you know and enjoy Jesus more? Mathis is arguing for our idea of spiritual formation, that you are changing over time whether you want to or not. You are becoming someone else. And who the person you become depends on your focus, intention, practices. I began by arguing for, of all things in a Christmas teaching, a dynamic understanding of hell as something other than a flaming torture chamber for souls in agony. But whatever the exact specifics of the fate of those who choose to be forever without God, Jesus and the authors of Scripture do describe it as misery and despair. That just as there are those who would rather not have God today, there will be many who would rather not have God for eternity. And that this true and total separation from God is the Bible described, or the Bible describes it as destruction, or the second death, or weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if human history has anything to say about this, we want this. 
We were with God in the beginning, and we didn't want Him. And for every attempt by God to bridge the gap between His perfect goodness and peace and our broken, hateful violence, we scramble over one another in our blind, writhing impulse to destroy those bridges one after another. All of us. All of us were bent and determined on hell, and that's where all of this was headed. Separation from God, destruction, death, weeping and gnashing of teeth until Christmas. Christmas pronounces the end of hell. That though we would not allow God to bridge the gap between our horror and His glory, God was so bent on loving us that He dove headlong into our awfulness to drag us out of it. As the Satan extended his dominion over the entire world, and rather than partner with God in bringing goodness to creation, we sidled up to the Satan to terrorize it. God announced, defiant, if you won't come to me, I will come to you. And he came to us in Christmas to defeat the darkness. Again, Fleming Rutledge writes, the meaning of Christmas is that God has entered the lists against the prince of darkness. You will hear this on Christmas Eve. Satan has met his master. These past few weeks of observing Advent together have been, I realize, not the ordinary festive pep of Christmas sermons. I've been saying very little about singing angels or journeying magi. To date, there's been no gushing over sweet little baby Jesus. Instead, I looked over my notes and we've talked about suffering and death and judgment, human depravity, and now hell of all things. And as much as I adore this season and have as long as I can remember, I am learning to understand this season more and more in light of these things, of suffering and death and judgment and depravity and hell, because when we allow the horrible weight of this darkness to settle over us for a moment, to come to terms with the brokenness within and without, then, and only then, I would argue, Will we break free of the confining sentimentality of a superficial holiday celebration and experience our hearts erupting in worship before the scandalous manger? As John's gospel beautifully puts it, a light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That in the horrible depth of our own wicked depravity and the reign of the evil one in a world of suffering and sickness and greed and hate and death and hell, God said, if you won't come to me, I'm coming to you. And though hell awaited with hungry, open jaws, God smashed the serpent's head, shattered his venomous fangs, broke down the black pillars of hell, and he did it all with a baby. One of my favorite creative liberties taken with a Christmas carol is a beautiful additional verse grafted into the first Noel. In Bethlehem, in swaddling clothes, they found Jesus just as the angel had told. They were broken by the thought as their young Savior nursed that God sent a baby to break the curse. Christmas marks the end of hell. Hell is a thing all of us have known in one way or another, an evil we have done or that has been done to us. But a light shines in the darkness and the long winter breaks. God sent a baby to break the curse. 
Let's pray and prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.